Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by the writer Chris Krauss, who will be best known probably to most Spectator readers as the author of I Love Dick. And yet before she was celebrated as a novelist, she's been a performance artist, she's been a videographer, she's been a critic and an essayist, and she's done. Well, she's been a go-go dancer as well at various times. So Chris's new book is called Social Practices, and it collects a number of the essays she's written over the years about and towards the, well, LA art scene, I suppose, in particular. But there's, I mean, how would you characterise the contents of the book, Chris? Well, I guess I, I guess there's, there's two bodies of material. One are kind of zeitgeisty pieces in a way. I, I work in the art world a lot, so I'm often asked to write catalog essays and things for artists. That's kind of my work exists as much in the art world as it does in the literary world. So in the course of this kind of coming and going within the art world, I've witnessed a lot of projects in the last decade or so that have taken place outside the main centers and that don't involve material objects per se, that, you know, are more about creating events. And I've written about some of those, like Rolling Jubilee, one of the essays, Lost Properties, is a lot about the group Rolling Jubilee that did a project where they bought debt on the open market and forgave it. Also, I did a project in, in Mexicali with a group of artists, an alternative gallery called Mexicali Rose that we invited to artist space in New York, and they restaged the gallery in New York. So part of it is writing about these kind of larger projects. And more ephemeral ones. Yes. And then the other part is writing essays about particular artist's work, you know, profiling an artist's work and trying to really get inside it. But you also, I mean, as you say in, I think, your introduction, you say, you know, quite often these aren't written on the artists so much as at them, that there's a kind of something quite personal and quite free you're bringing to it. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Not personal in in that it has to do with the particular circumstances of my life, but more personal in my effort to connect with the work in a very intimate way, you know, to try and bring my presence to the work and to, you know, allow people to watch me perceive the work. And also you've done, I mean, one of the most sort of standout pieces in the book for I think particularly a kind of outsider art world outsider is this description of the extraordinary thing you organized the chance festival where you took Baudrillard the famous postmodern philosopher and you flew him off to a casino in the desert and arranged a kind of art happening around him can you tell me a bit about that Oh, yeah, that was marvelous. Um, We did that. I was just moving to L.A. That was 1996. And Baudrillard was kind of at the height of his fame in the art and critical theory world. Silver Lochinger, my then husband and longtime artistic collaborator, he and Baudrillard were very close friends. And we were driving around in the desert outside of L.A. And, you know, Baudrillard, of course, has written about the desert of the real as a metaphor for the vacuity of consumer culture and the U.S. And we thought, how great would it be if we could bring Baudrillard to the desert? And the idea kind of grew from there because there's these casinos that sprout up 
in the middle of the desert, nothing for miles except the casino. So we picked one of those places that was completely isolate except for the casino apparatus. And um, we tricked them into believing that we were doing a three-day philosophy conference there. And instead, it was, you know, we had the Black Box Theater and it was Baudrillard dressed up like Liberace in in a gold glitter jacket and Paul Miller, DJ Spooker. There were a lot of bands. There was an art show. It was a real festival. And Baudrillard, I mean, you've got a very attractive sketch of his character in here where you say actually, though he's seen as this very sort of revered figure, that actually he was he was kind of fun. Yeah, I always, Baudrillard was always fun. He, of all the French theorists that I met via Silver, he was the one who was the most, I thought, like an artist. You know, he had a very wry sense of humor and everything amused him he had in his apartment he had his lights rigged up to the leaves of a rubber plant so you could turn the lights on and off by stroking the leaves of a rubber plant (laughs) he had a great sense of humor i remember taking him to see the dancing chicken in chinatown (laughs) (laughs) it's not a post everyone can make now in that piece you say somewhere you know everybody had a bit of an agenda for this and you said I had decided I really wanted to be famous as an artist and that I wasn't going to get there making, you know, documentaries with groups of women in New York. I needed to do something more spectacular. You wanted to be famous as an artist, but you became famous as a novelist. True. Did you, I mean, was that disconcerting? Oh, well, I mean, at the time, the art world was the only arena available to me, the only one imaginable. And of course, like most writers who kind of, you know, begin in the art world, I really wanted to be known in the literary world, of course. But the art world was what was there. So I was, you know, leaving New York in the mid-90s and coming to L.A. It was everything just seemed so wide open in L.A. at the time. Everything was possible because nobody cared. Yes, you said actually that the chance event got a kind of really stinky review in Art Forum. Yes, it was hilarious. It was hilarious. I mean, in a way, that event marked the changing of the guard between New York and L.A., New York no longer being the absolute centre of the art world, and people were really resentful about that. And you say, I mean, you say, you know, you were ambitious, you wanted to be famous, but, you know, so much of what you've written about and of where your writing has lived is in... You know, things that are more marginal, things that are more downtown, you know, a bit seamier, a bit... Does it kind of throw you off your game to suddenly find 20 years after you wrote your first novel that, you know, you're an Amazon primetime show starring Kevin Bacon and so on? That's true. And, I mean, of course I was hyperbolizing when I said I want to be famous in the art world. That's almost an oxymoron already. I never wanted to be a Kardashian. I just wanted to have enough visibility and enough freedom that I could do the work that interested me and find an audience that it would matter to. Absolutely. And can you tell me a bit about how, you know, I Love Dick, kind of, because it, it, it was a sort of word of mouth success, wasn't it, as a novel? Is that right? Is that a fair well, to say? I, you know, I don't know. It came out again in 06. It came out for the first time in 97, you know, and three or 400 people read it seriously. And that was enough. I mean, at that moment, that was enough. But then it came out again in 06, and it got picked up by a younger generation of women, a lot of them who were keeping blogs at the time. That was kind of the height of the blogging movement. A lot of these people who championed the book on their blogs have gone on to become very 
successful and established writers since then. But it really spoke to this generation of younger women who were finding their own voices. And that really became the new audience for the book. I, who knew? Yeah. Why, did you, why do you think it did strike that generation in particular? Do you think society changed in a way that made what you were doing timely? Well, I mean, it was always a coming-of-age novel. I didn't emphasize that. I thought that I was writing a kind of philosophical work, but there is the aspect to the book that it's a coming-of-age novel, and she's writing a lot about adolescence. She's middle-aged, but she's writing about adolescence, and, you know, that's always the most kind of popular terrain for popular fiction. Everybody loves a coming-of-age novel. And would you call it autofiction? I mean, it's got, it has a sort of autobiographical element in it. Yeah, you know, I'm not crazy about that term, autofiction. Olivia Lang and I did a conversation recently for the Paris Review, and we were both venting about how much we dislike that term, yeah. autofiction. I think it's because, you know, it implies that the auto is the point, that the self is the point, when it really isn't. I mean, it's, you know, it may be written in the first person, but it's about experiencing and processing things in the world. And is so when you, I mean, I sometimes think some writers, when they're writing about the world, it's a way of writing about themselves. Is it for you the other way around? Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Another thing that runs through your writing is, you know, you're deeply immersed in, you know, what often English people find kind of reflexively hard to take seriously, but, you know, you, you think and read feelingly about cultural theory and, you know, sort of literary theory and so on. How has that fed into your writing? You know, and I loved it. It is a sort of philosophical oh. romance, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, totally, totally. Well, I mean, I was around theory a lot. Sylvain and I were living together during the 80s and into the 90s. He was publishing all of the French theorists with semiotex, Deleuze, Guattari, Virilio, Lyotard, Baudrillard. So I was kind of immersed in it. Even before meeting Sylvain, I kind of had an interest in it and did a lot of reading like that on my own. Simone Weil, I did a huge study of the philosopher Simone Weil, and that came a lot into my second book, Aliens and Anorexia. So, yeah, I mean, I love reading critical... I mean, it's a kind of poetics in a way. It is like reading poetry. You know, it's this really kind of compressed, crystalline presentation of thought, you know, and that can be really electric. And is it helpful for fiction? I yeah. Mean, it, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting, because a lot of... I think probably it's a very positivist English tradition that says, oh, we murder to dissect, you know, we never let theorists, particularly not French ones, anywhere near our... Well, semiotext has always had a thing about publishing the primary text never the, and never the secondary ones. And I think always if you go to the primary text, they're much more exciting than all of the, you know, subsequent academic work yeah. around the original text. Now, I wondered, as someone who's so steeped in this material... What you make of the fact that sort of suddenly, you know, postmodernism has become this kind of big political football, you know, the right. Postmodern theorists get blamed for the existence of post-truth, of this kind of post-truth world we're living in. You know, people like Jordan Peterson say that postmodernists and cultural Marxists are tearing down Western civilization. I mean, how does that strike you? Does that seem like a misreading or...? Well, it just seems a little absolutist to me. You know, postmodernism is such an elastic term. Are we talking about art? Are we talking about architecture, critical theory? And 
people love, I mean, even ever since these works were published in English, people love to bash critical theory. Certainly, there are people who have picked it up, who are proponents of critical theory, who are really laughable, you know, and I think they're the ones who invite all of the attacks, because it becomes like a caricature of itself. But if you go to the original text, there's really nothing laughable about it. You know, Deleuze's work, Guattari's work, it's a very beautiful and pure description of a world. Yeah. Somebody else you've written about is Kathy Acker. You wrote a biography of Kathy Acker that was published last year. What drew you to Kathy Acker? I mean, you knew her a bit, didn't you? I did, Yeah. Another postmodernist there, Kathy Acker. Yes. <laughs> She'd have been quite flattered to be told that she was bringing down Western civilization, I think. Yes. I read her biography, and that came out, that came out last year. It was the first biography of her. She lived in London for a long time, so a lot of writing that book involved London research into the 80s. I wanted to write the book not because of our... We didn't have much of a friendship. I mean, we were in some of the same rooms. She was about a generation or half generation older than me. So when I was arriving in New York, she was already very established. She cut a huge figure, and her early work was incredibly important to me. Before I ever thought I wanted to be a writer, I read Kathy's work, and it just went into my body like the smarter version of yourself saying all your secret thoughts. (laughs) But then, you know, I watched her life and her career develop over the years, and I was friends with the guy, Matthias Wiegner, who became her executor, who took care of her at the end of her life. So I was down in Tijuana a couple of times when she was in an alternative cancer treatment. And it was stunning, and, and I mean, it was just tragic to me to see how it all ended up, you know. It was just a real tragic narrative arc there. You know, the last time I'd seen her, she's with this entourage, the photos, the tattoos, the incredible wardrobe, and then she's dying alone in this kind of tin-pot clinic in Tijuana. So I wanted to write the book right after her death, but it was too soon, and the book that I would have written at that time would have been the wrong book. You know, it would have been too sentimental, too overly identifying with Kathy. Some time had to pass. And when I came to it, finally, in 2014 or 15, I thought not just a story of Kathy. It was a way of doing a kind of revisionist history of those eras, the 70s and 80s in New York and London, that have been so mythologized. And, you know, there have been hundreds of memoirs about that time, you know, a lot of them not really to my taste. And I think something about the memoirs just becomes so dishonest because people are so nostalgic for their youth, right? It was so cooperative. The artists all supported each other. That wasn't true. I mean, as a young person arriving from New Zealand, it was they they hated each other. They were really competitive. (laughs) I'm not nostalgic for any of it. I mean, she was a great contributor to myth, though, wasn't she? Oh, yes. I mean, but Kathy's relation to myth was so complex. You know, on the one hand, she saw it as a literary source. Midway through her career, she started seeing herself as a maker of alternative myths because narrative was so degraded. But she also believed that in order for her work to exist, you know, in a, in a popular way, she herself had to become a myth. And she wasn't wrong, 
you know, her work is incredibly experimental. There's nothing commercial about it. And yet she managed to have an enormous amount of coverage in the 80s, largely because of the image that she created for herself, the myth that she created. Unfortunately, the myth kind of came and and, and bit her back, I think, at the end. And a large reason why her work fell out of favor in the years after her death, and even by the mid-90s, was because that myth was so kind of high 80s. And by the mid-90s, it was like, it was passe. (laughs) Nobody wanted to see these, like, you know, big shoulder pads and comedicus iron clothes and the competitiveness with other women. Also, I mean... She was of an era where there was room for just one exceptional woman in any field. And the ethos by the mid-90s was so different from that and so much more cooperative. So Kathy's, you know, annihilation of every other person, especially every other woman in the room, it didn't play well <laughs> as time went by. So time had to go on for people to pick up her work and really come back to it on its own terms. Now, how interested are you in? I mean, I'm very struck reading these essays that you you know you'll jump into them at odd angles and often stop, kind of quite abruptly. And I'll turn the page thinking there's more of this, and I'm like, oh no, that's the end. You know, uh-huh. I mean, do you consciously when you're obviously you know your fiction as well and you know your biography have very uncon you know you don't take the conventional off the peg form. Is playing with form one of your sort of central things or do you just follow your instinct and do whatever well I mean you always have to find the right way a lot of these pieces I think I'm weaving together multiple sources as a way into the artist's work so sometimes I'll use bits from my diary sometimes the artist's on writing sometimes it'll remind me of a piece of writing and I'll bring something else into it. And it's almost like making a movie. I gather all of these possible sources, and it's like a pre-production period, and absorb the sources. And then when I sit down to write it, it's like performing something, and the sources come together, but they come together through me in the writing of the piece. Yeah. You also have one very intriguing essay in it called What I Couldn't Write. What's, oh, yeah. Can you talk about what... I mean, clearly you've written something there. Uh, <laughs> was it what you couldn't write previously? or? Well, there's an artist who I knew personally. She was a good friend, and I was very fond of her work, Julie Becker. She had a show here in London at ICA recently, recreating some of her best-known installations. I wrote about her several times from the time she was 25. There's a couple of essays on her in here, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. From the time she was 25 and had her first major show until her premature death at the age of 43, I must have written about her four or five times. So Art Forum asked me to write the passages, the obituary piece, and I did. And of course, Art Forum is very much for the record, and you really want to just focus on the work. But there were other circumstances surrounding Julie's death and her life and career that I felt I had to leave out of the official story. And this other piece, what I couldn't write, it's all the circumstances around the artist's career. Yeah. It also contains a very scalding line about submissions, to go back to this autofiction thing. You say there's something like 100% of submissions to a memoir prize, or, or non-fiction prize, were memoir. Uh-huh. Invited to judge a non-fiction competition for a university press, she was amazed that every single manuscript was a memoir. She suggested the United Solipsists of America. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't believe it. Of all the submissions, 
And this is the category is called nonfiction. So they could write about global warming. They could write about the Arctic. They could write about crime. Anything at all. They all wrote memoirs of their childhood. Yes, Why? <laughs> Funny, I'd say the, the essay collection ends, which I think is entirely charming and very personal, with a story about, I think it's entitled Happiness, where you describe how you came back to your house having lent it to various people and you couldn't find the plastic spoon for measuring out coffee grounds for your <laughs> cafeteria. And you spent two or three pages being really annoyed about this. Yeah, the black plastic coffee scoop. <laughs> Which you couldn't get anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, of course, the black plastic coffee scoop is a stand-in for any kind of loss and for any kind of grief. You know, and the point of the story is, you know, how long are we allowed to grieve? And at what point, you know, are we just forced to, quote, move on? You know, and how much a part of the sort of neoliberal consciousness this is, that you can't just mourn the black plastic coffee scoop. You have to buy another one. <laughs> of course, the black plastic coffee scoop was a person. Excellent. Chris Krauss, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.